Hi, I'm Carla Samith, Carla Rachel Samith, and the name of my book is One Day on the Gold Line, a memoir and essays. Uh, hi, and I'm Kristen Casey, and I'm the author of a memoir, Rock Monster, My Life with Joe Walsh, which is an addiction memoir. So, Carla, I'm so excited to talk to you. This is actually my third type of uh, in conversation with interview with another author, and um, I, I read your book just a few days ago, and I did it in one sitting, and I wanted to call you. I was. I wish. I wished we could have done this like immediately, because I was just awash in all these thoughts and feelings about your book. It was amazing, first of all, um, and in a way that I didn't even expect. Because what was so funny was I always tell people I I love memoirs so much. I would read a memoir about a farmer, or you know, <laughs> or a, like a midwife. And I actually use use midwife as an example because anyone who knows me knows that I just have no interest in mothering or you know that type of family life. And so when I was when I um, got your book, and I thought I just sort of assumed, oh, I was I'm excited. This is going to be a look at um, a family with addiction from a different perspective, from that of the mother, you know, because I'm I'm addiction memoirs are are probably my you know most favorite type to read, and like two or three essays in. Um, I'd completely forgotten what I expected to read and I was completely <laughs> fascinated by your life. And then, you know, you're talking about everything from trying to um, get pregnant and everything that you went through and then motherhood and having relationships. And like, we never, you know, I don't know, I don't want to um, spoil it for anyone, but we didn't get to your son's addiction until much later in the book. And I'd completely forgotten about it by then. I was just fascinated by your journey into motherhood. Um, so yeah, I was just riveted and I had a few things to do that day, but I took it with me everywhere I went. As soon as I'd get from point A to point B, I'd pull it back out and read it again. And I, it was fantastic. Well, that is really great to hear. I mean, coming from you, cause I, I also read your, and I'm not just saying this because <laughs> that, but I had a similar experience with rock monster. I started it and I was just on it the whole it, it really made my life so much better in the days that I was reading it because I was you know I don't know if this happened to you but I was really sick of my story and um you know I, I have mixed feelings but I was just ready to move on to somebody else's story and part of doing that I'm also writing more fiction now because you know and I'm not writing from the perspective of a mom but I'm writing from the perspective starting with a 16 year old kid so and, and and anyway that's a whole other story but when I read Rock Monster I was really interested and I had I, I was really impressed with the way it was written uh, and I probably should have called you also right away because you know I really I think what really struck me was also the language and the honesty and really the scenes and just really seeing and understanding. It was vivid, like cinema. <laughs> Thank you. Like cinema. You probably heard that already about this. Um, I also, I've been thinking a lot, I, I, something I wanted to ask you about is, you know, and maybe it's a little bit different because so much of your life was immersed in the music music and music industry when in this story right but i'm curious whether you thought about what music you you would have someone play to go with this if you were um if you were to recommend you know while somebody was reading your memoir because it felt very alive to me 
Oh, thank you so much. And it's funny that you um, asked me that because I had thought about that. It was sort of on my list of things to do at some point. I didn't even, you know, I'm I'm a child of the 80s or whatever, and I just don't think in terms of streaming still. I don't, I'm, I'm not on Spotify, um, but somebody uh, I know in the music business says, you know, you got to make a playlist on Spotify to go with the book. And I thought, oh, that, that would be great. I mean, I, I could come up with 20 songs without even thinking. I mean, of course, the the songs of Joe's that that I loved so much, you know, that I got to hear over and over and hear live, but also Terry Reed's, you know, the guy that I had one of my affairs with and um, just a lot of songs from that, um, like Ringo's song Photograph to this day or Billy Preston's song Will It Go Round in Circles. Um, every time I hear those songs, if they come on the radio, um, I have a, a really visceral, like a wave of um, nostalgia and um uh, you know, I'm transported just sort of a couple for a couple seconds back to those days, um, especially the Billy Preston and, and Ringo Starr songs, because I think out of my whole book that I was just telling someone this last night, um, someone was telling me, you know, he'd read some of my more recent writing and he said, there's so much joy in this stuff that I'm reading right now. And I loved your book, but there's, you know, you have to admit not a lot of joy in there. And I said, yeah, I mean, I really feel like that chapter five, I kind of peak, you know, that's like on the Ringo tour where things were good, but even then we were fighting all the time and, and um, overdoing it with drugs. But that particular tour, uh, I would love to put that together. Um, and thank you for asking that. Cause I'd love to know that it, I mean, I'd love to know that it, it, it had a, a sense of life to it to, you know, it was, it was very alive in my memory for so long. Actually, now that I've written it, I find that sort of thankfully a lot of the intensity of those memories is fading. Um, but for 25 years or whatever, it they stayed very fresh, a lot of them. Um, and I'm glad, I guess it translated to the page, so that's good. Um, with your book, you know, one of the things that I found so fascinating that is so alien to me was this longing to have a baby and everything that you went through to have that. And I can see, I mean, I can see, I know what you mean when you say like you were tired of your story. I definitely got to that point myself. Like it was ready to put that baby to bed and move on. Um, and of course we were both writing about really challenging stuff, but you know, I, it just, it was gripping to me to read that about, about wanting a baby so bad. It occurred to me like, I, I don't know what that feels like. The only thing I've wanted that much maybe has been a writing career. And I don't think it's the same thing. Ready? I mean, you're both right. So you tell me. Yeah. You know what? Actually there is some of this process of publishing my book that feels so much like trying to have a baby, the decisions you make, you, you go with a publisher you move ahead, you get to the point where you can't like say, okay, the baby's not coming out because the baby, because it's eight months and <laughs> the baby's coming out. Um, and I, I've had to sort of think of it a bit like that because, you know, with all the different challenges along the way, I, I've had to really, um, the book has felt, the longing to write the book has felt close to what I felt having a child. But I guess, I once asked myself, am I less of a writer? Because if I had to pick between pursuing my writing and having a child, I would pick the child. And there was a time in my life when I was just barely you know, sleeping and single mom where I thought, well, if I just publish one story about issues that I feel like would connect with other people related to pregnancy loss and all the, all the things that I was going through before I had my, or be single parenthood, alternative, underrepresented parents. 
blended families. So I thought if I just publish one story, but then as you know, it's a greedy monster, the whole thing about publishing. Once you start doing it, you want more. <laughs> and- oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Like, I, I do feel like there was um, uh, some of that weight that I carried around my whole life. I, my first, I, the first thing I got published was a poem, I think in 2003 or four. And um, there was this, the heaviness that I lived with lightened up a bit, you know, it was still there and I wanted more. And I feel like the, the vast majority of it, almost the core of it was finally alleviated when my book came out. So what is that? 15 years. Um, every piece that I got published helped, but, um, I now feel sort of settled. Like I can fully breathe. And until my book came out, I didn't. Um, but I, I have to say to circle back that thing about being both a mom and a writer and are you less of one or the other? In my opinion, I don't know about for novelists, but for memoirists especially, if you don't have a full life where you are something else, what are you going to write about, first of all? <laughs> you know? Like, I write about, like, to me, um, I work in the field of um, sexuality and sexual healing, and that's a huge passion of mine, and recovery is also, I mean, those two things are, are my two biggest passions, along with writing, but I'm a memoirist, so if I don't have something else going on, if I'm not working, you know, or pursuing those passions in some way, what the hell am I going to write about? I'm going to be, I know people who are like one-trick ponies, they have one, they did one thing in their life, they wrote a memoir, but that's, and then they write 10 essays on it, and and then they're done, like, they, there's nothing else they have to write about, because that's all they've ever done. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I just think that, um, you have a, you know, a number of topics in here. Oh yeah. I remember what I was going to say earlier. So I'm reading this book and I'm immediately like uh, pulled in and it's very compelling and I'm fascinated. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in there. Like the, just because you, you're, there's a lot about you. That's a little bit different. You know, there's the, um, I'm always fascinated by the Jewish experience, although you don't probably talk a lot about that, but being a lesbian and, um, and then this struggling to have a baby and then having a baby and being a single mom and then trying to date. I mean, there's, there's four books right there really. (laughs) But but when you, when I got to the, I was so, so immersed in it. I was finally settled in at home. So I I forget it must've been halfway through or towards the end. um, When the, the title essay came up uh, one day on the gold line. And from, I think the first paragraph or the first line, I mean, it must've been the first paragraph. My jaw literally dropped and it stayed there. I felt like I was punched in the gut. It just took my breath away. It, I I almost teared up, um, but I didn't want, I wouldn't let myself because I wanted to finish reading it. I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't let my eyes get blurry because it was just devastating and horrific. And, um, uh, but yeah, the whole book just had so many different, um, it was, it was a real tapestry. I don't know. It was, and, and it, I thought that maybe I would, I think I even mentioned this to you on that short call we had that I have a feeling you're, that reading this book's going to make me want to call my mom. And, you know, I get her just to call my mom. A lot of things make me want to do that. But uh, your relationship with your son was so different from my relationship with my mother. I mean, you read my book. So, I mean, it's really different. Yeah, I kind of wondered about that. Yeah, I thought about that. For me, it was really important during a certain period of time to read a lot of memoirs by addicts and by families of addicts, but in particular by addicts, because I went through this period with my son where I was really angry. <laughs> I would I would say things like, how could you do this to me? You know, like I'm a single mom and I try, how could you steal money and how, and all these things. And I, and I really needed to 
gain some empathy. And I got that by a combination of uh, largely by reading memoir and also, you know, and I read all the beautiful boy and tweak and all those books, but I also got it by going to Al-Anon and it made a huge difference. Uh, so when I finally had to talk to my son and say, I can't keep you safe at home, you know, you, that we'd have to find another alternative for where he'd live. Um, and it was really scary because I didn't really know where that was going to be. Um, by then we had a relationship again, but as you know, from having read the memoir, I got pretty, you know, you're, you're, you can get pretty out of control when some part of you feels threatened, uh, you know, in terms of the possible, the greatest loss that you could imagine losing a son. And, and, um, and there were, there were some periods where I, I got pretty nutty. Um, and I think part of writing this, I really tried to write about my story, even though I was writing a good amount of my son's story. But a lot of this is really fresh in my mind, too, because I just, um, I think part of the reason I had that weird dream that I seem to want to talk about is <laughs> that um, I, you know, Al-Anon is a slow program, so I only just started making amends after about seven years, <laughs> and I met, with my, I met with my son, and so that's what happened yesterday, and we talked about some of these things. Um, we talked about the relationship. We talked about how having this close relationship where we're just so connected can be a little can be overwhelming at times. Um, and there's a beautiful intensity that you see between between a, a mom, one one kid and one mom, but it, there also can be it also can be a lot for a kid to absorb. So um, we did that yesterday, and I think that really stuck in my mind. I think that's why I had this bizarre dream. Uh, yeah, I want to hear about this dream. I, I have. I want to say real quick though that I mean, as an intimacy coach, I actually work with a lot of men who have who were raised by single mothers, and they're really good men. And in fact, they're such good men that they they've become so empathetic with just sort of the the female experience, I think, and what women go through, and they're they're wired to be in touch and attuned with that, that they, that they do lose a certain sense of self or um, this sort of um, autonomous, uh, their masculine identity, if they're not careful, like not, you know, if they come to me, there's usually an issue, but I know what you mean. Like there has to, it's, it must be really hard to strike that balance to keep that closeness while also allowing him to be, you know, he, uh, I don't know how old he is now. Um, uh, but yeah, but to, to raise a boy, especially through his teens when they're, you know, um, yeah, uh, you know, out there with their friends, and you want him to be his own person. And I mean, I would, I'm just imagining like never having a son, but I was like that as a child, too. And I think my mother just didn't know how to handle it. And she had five kids, too. So I was sort of like collateral. I mean, I was the one, she just had to let one of us go because she couldn't have the energy or the time or she didn't have the resources to, um, yeah. you know, she, she'd have to have been a single mom to, to have to be able to, um, uh, rein me in whatsoever. And she, you know, couldn't do it. But I that that I know that um, essay where you talk about the craziness that was really powerful for me as well. In fact, I highlighted that one line where you, um, it's cray cray, mom. I think, yeah. and, it, and, yeah. and and that that one girl, the young girl, she pulls you aside and tells you what it's like to um, be around her parent for a lot of addicts to be around their parents early in recovery or whatever. But um, what you went through in that essay was just that that real probably did make me want to call my mom <laughs> you know it, it's you know it's it's hard because I think the addict feels so much shame for what we've done 
but also anger for being put in a position to, you know, to um, uh, have any kind of emotional turmoil that we weren't ready for. And for me, that's what it was like as a kid. I, you know, this sort of combination shame and anger all the time with around my mom. Mm, I totally get that. I, I mean, I, I think I, I grew up with a lot of those emotions in my family, even though it wasn't uh, alcoholic. When I hear people talking about an alcoholic family, my family sounds a lot like that for kids and a lot of chaos it could be happy chaos but definitely always a lot of noise and people yelling i hate you or laughing or you know just kind of, <laughs> yeah. I really want to go back a few conversations too and just say so it wasn't i'm always curious whether this book is relatable i know you wrote you were so clear which i thought was really great about how you felt about having children and i wondered whether the book like you said, whether it's puzzling, whether, you know, for some people who were not interested in having children, whether it's, uh, it's not interesting. So I liked hearing what you had to say about it because, um, I, I, I did have the feedback from one reader, uh, once one, who looked at it, who said that they couldn't wrap there. It was a man that he couldn't wrap his head around why somebody would want a kid so much and that he had trouble with that whole concept. Oh, wow. You know, it's interesting. Like, I've never felt it. Um, I can imagine. I mean, I know what it's like to want, and I know what it's like to um, to crave intimacy or that bond. Or I, I did. I was asked once by this um, woman, a writer named Sarah Catherine Lewis. She said she was reading something I'd written about um, being a teenager, and she said, it's really surprising to me that you didn't get pregnant, like, on purpose as a teen, because you were so alone and you know, she knew what it was like to be alone as a teenager and be and desperate for, for someone to love and love back. And uh, I think a lot of young women ha have a kid for that reason, because it's someone to love or someone to love them. And I and when she said that to me, I, I just thought that never even occurred to me. <laughs> um, it never occurred to me to to to. But I think also I had such a difficult relationship with my mother that I um. I didn't have a good role model for what a good relationship was like. And I also knew that um, if I had a kid, I didn't want to put them through that. So on the one hand, I, I had this image in my head of what motherhood could be because I didn't have it. So I daydreamed about it a lot. Right, and right. then and then I, I also just had this, um, you know, uh, just this real, in a, in a, the, that instinct was just gone in me, I guess. And so... Um, but I can imagine it. And I think it's, you know, sometimes men maybe don't use your imagination enough. I mean, empathy is kind of second nature. I can empathize with somebody, you know, I can empathize with a hunter who comes home without, a, you know, an elephant, even though I think that's abhorrent. I can, I can understand, I can empathize with his feelings. So that's kind yeah. of a weird, what, <laughs> I don't know who this guy was. And ironically, I married, the person I'm married to now never had children, never wanted children. And I think for some of similar, actually what you said about it sounds very similar to what you're saying. So, yeah, I mean, there's a part of me that feels like there is, that that is one aspect of my experience that she might not ever be able to relate to. But it's so true that you can still be interested in um, and have empathy, even if mm. that's where, where you're going with that. I think I probably really got d dug in um, when you were talking about all the failed pregnancies, you know, um, not the timing being wrong, you know, there were abortions and miscarriages and, and um, 
feeling like I think a failure. I don't specifically remember you saying that, but just everything that you were going through and all the, you know, your body sort of being used as like a guinea pig in some ways. And, um, you know, all of that, um, that was very relatable to that. I thought you imparted or you conveyed your desire and your want and your longing through all that pain you were going through. I mean, that was very, it made me understand you know, how much you wanted a baby and I, and then when I read about, you know, that oatmeal story about how he wanted his oatmeal and, and you know, then I just had to laugh. I thought, Oh God, that poor woman, everything she went through and, and, um, and she's got a tiger on her hands. My dad said that I came out crying. Oh, no, I asked my dad what I was like when I was born or an infant. And he says, um, you came out screaming and you haven't stopped since. Love it. And you, your relationship with your dad, I wanted to hear more. It seemed very loving. And, and I remember when you, you asked them for help, I think when you were going into a rehab and they immediately, or when you, you just asked them for help and you came home and they were, somehow they were able to be there without yeah, you, which is a probably, you know, a skill that I didn't have. I mean, yeah. I was, the other extreme, like, yeah. I, yeah. When I was reading your book, and actually earlier you had said something about, um, you know, how crazy you can be and how dug in. Um, my parents did, I think, default to the other position. My father pulled away. The worse I got, the more he pulled away. Um, but when my, you know, they, I think they feared my physical safety was at stake, you know, and they, they reacted like a parent would. When I got beat up by that guy that I was seeing and I called and I told my dad, I mean, he just jumped into action. But emotionally, they had already started to detach. And I, you know, I was trying to get them to. I was, I was pushing them away. And that, like I said, they had, you know, they worked uh, nonstop and they had other kids and they they couldn't seem to reach me and I think emotionally it was easier on them so yeah they went the other direction I think than a lot of parents and you did which was to get really really dug in there's no I mean if there's somebody who knows how to do it perfectly I, I don't know but yeah you guys kind of went the other direction of mine and the day I got sober and I called home and, and told my dad I mean he was he jumped on a plane within a matter of days uh he, I mean he couldn't get to Vegas fast enough he was so happy and our you know, I was reading your book, and, and, and Beautiful Boy is another great example of the father, like, trying to go to the ends of the earth to, to understand their kid and, and help them. And um, But it also forced me to um, to not rely on anybody and to, and to make a hard decision to live and to, and to make a good life for myself. So, I mean, there are uh, benefits, I guess, that came from their deta- my parents' detachment. You know, there was a part of me that wanted uh, that – the book was very fulfilling. So it's not that I felt it was missing, but there was a part of me that wanted to know more, like, how did you do it? How did you get from where you were? But who knows why? There seems to be a moment in time in addiction where some people do get to the point where they just, there has to be, you know, and I know we hear bottom, this, that, and the other, but, you know, how there's obviously much more about what was happening versus the recovery part. And that's a whole other conversation because I, I read a book recently. I think it was Leslie Jamin, Jameson's. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you read that one? No, I haven't read that one. I, I was so disappointed with the empathy exams that I've sort of. And I didn't, read, I didn't read that one, but she's kind of talking about how people tend, you know, can you have a memoir that's interesting about recovery? I mean, and I'll be honest, I really loved the Mr. Toad's wild ride in your story. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't generally like hearing uh, other people's story of recovery too much. When I read addiction memoirs, if they get really deep into that, I mean, I, I, on the one hand, I don't want the story to end, but I think, um, I, and I, and I, 
to me, the program got me sober and the program is the steps and the principles behind the steps are what keep me sober. But um, uh, a lot of people go in and out and I don't know, I may write about it someday. I will say this. I have wondered what it was that pushed me back over the edge, you know, toward the side of life, what enabled me to make that decision. And sometimes I wonder if it was a sense of having felt loved and valued by my father when I was very young, like there was a shred of a shred of knowledge that I did have some value. And I wonder if that's why some people don't make it is they just didn't, you know, have that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. This is a question I get asked all the time is what did Joe think about the book? And I, I have no idea, but what, you know, with your son being, um, you know, he factored heavily into it. Did he um, read it? Did he have any issues and how did the amends go? And do you think that that led to your weird dream? So there's a few questions okay, for you. So, <laughs> okay. So first of all, He's been telling me all along, write the book, write the story, but I had to keep going back to him because obviously when he told me that early in his recovery, that, you know, as a parent, I felt like I wasn't being responsible not to continue to go back to him and say, hey, is this okay with you? I did have a moment, I sent you a link to a stand-up comedy uh, when I did a set and it was all about addiction. I had a moment the next morning after that. My son was still living in a recovery house and I woke up in the morning feeling like, I'm a terrible person. I outed my son. Um, but he has been pretty steadfast all along. He goes, he's often gone to readings. Um, he went to one where I read the, the riff on what to expect when you're expecting the teenage years, when Molly is not a teenager. And yeah. um, he said it, it was so funny. It was so funny. It was tragic comedy. And I said, but yeah. it was so much funnier if it wasn't about me is what he said. <laughs> He's been a big supporter. He's and and I gave him the manuscript in an earlier stage and said, "Please read it and tell me if there's anything that you want to talk about." You know, or, honestly, I, he didn't read the manuscript that I know of. Um, oh, and, but he has read individual stories, and he has said all along, "You know, do it, write the story." And there have, you know, that's why I was so interested in the the article you wrote about anonymity. Because I think both my son and I felt like, at least during a certain period of time, that it was really important for other people to hear these stories and to know about this. Because, um, and for me, I felt that way because when I felt very alone in different parts of my life, when I would read a story, a poem, an essay, a book in particular, in particular during the heavy addiction years, um, it, it was very, it was my lifeline. So... Um, I have had experiences when I wrote that story, the the title story, I had a lot that without giving it that relates to violence, police violence. Um, I had so many people reach out to me of every ethnicity and every, you know, from homeless person to, um, you know, being a random store. And this went on for years. My son would, would watch because we'd go somewhere and somebody would say, did you write that story one year on the, or one, one day on the gold line? Um, so going back to your question, I digress. He has been a big supporter and continues to be. And I and really was a, supported me going back to school. He recently spent a weekend with my younger sister um, and told and she, she called me up and said, I've never met a kid that admired and respected their mom so much. Now, that's not to say that I probably drive him crazy at times. I remember I terrified him when he was still at home because I would say, I'm going to go back to school when you go to college and we'll live on a dorm together and go to parties. 
I was just, I think maybe that may have been what sent him into addiction. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was terrifying. Um, but he responded, it, I think it was very interesting for him for me to do the amends because he got to see what it looked like from the other end. And the thing that I've learned in the adult years and the years that my son's been in recovery and he's been in recovery about five years is that he's much more, our relationship is so much better and he's so much more likely to tell me things when I can control myself where he can tell me, you know, if he tells me he's feeling anxiety or he tells me, oh, I'm not really going to meet, you know, but I'm being the best person I can and I'm sober. And um, if I don't react and I listen, I truly am open to what he has to say our relationship goes so much better. Um, and we, yeah, I mean, he's, he is still everything to me. I, I sometimes drive around, uh, <laughs> cause I have a Spotify list and I drive around and I listen to a Spotify list. And so if I haven't heard from him for a few days, I know that sounds kind of weird, huh? I just felt really sentimental all of a sudden. I don't know. I mean, I think if you're really close with um, your child or your parent, that's not abnormal at all. I mean, um, I think it's kind of, it can be ideal for, you know, if you both want to be in contact like that, it's awesome. I, think Al-Anon, I mean, I know Al-Anon really helped me have a better relationship with, um, with my mother for sure. I mean, in our own way, we're actually very close. We don't, I mean, we're not in the same kind of communication, but when we are, um, you know, I've got nothing but love for her. And um, we, yeah, and, and Al-Anon has just been tremendous. And I remember when I first got sober and she, she asked me, you know, in, in a, at a Thanksgiving dinner. So, so I couldn't say what I really thought. <laughs> I guess I could have, but she said, do you think we need Al-Anon? And I was like, oh, I don't know. No, not yeah. But in truth, I was like, yes, but I think everyone needs Al-Anon. And I think that all relationships can be <laughs> because it's like, um, it's about boundaries and, um, autonomy and that's you know everybody needs some of that right yeah i've heard people say that not everyone needs to be in AA, but everyone needs al-anon yeah, but, yeah. Um, unfortunately if you're in al-anon you can't force it so i'm always want my wife to go um but um i can't force her uh to go i really got to see though one thing that I didn't realize is how much somebody else's caring about you and anxiety can actually cause the other person anxiety. And that's something I really was able to observe in my marriage. Yeah. That was fascinating. When I, I read that, uh, in your, in your, it, it might've been in the Craig Cray mom essay, but, um, uh, it was really, it, it was like new information to me. It was kind of fascinating, but I mean, it resonated. And I thought, yeah, that's so true. You know, they sort of feeds off each other. My mom and I are both anxious people too. And I think that, um, uh, those relationships are always a little fraught and then you throw addiction into the mix and yeah. But uh, so tell me what, um, the dream. <laughs> yeah. Tell me the dream. So I'm dying to know. Um, the three, my, my older sister and I, and my son were all, needing and wanting to go into rehab at the same time <laughs> it was really weird because uh that hasn't been the experience of my older sister but we were all three trying we, and it was a friday and we were waiting all day at some place where everybody had quit and you know that and after a while it just looked like we weren't going to get any help and and it was it was just strange as i you know just like it happens when you recount dreams they're way more interesting when you're in them than when you're you're telling someone about them but um i just remember being so frustrated by the process of trying to 
find a rehab and being able to afford it for, and have all three of us go that I said to my sister, I, I think I'm just going to have a drink. <laughs> she said, you, you should go ahead. I don't think anyone would judge you for it. <laughs> um, I was uh, taught, I, or I, I read this somewhere years ago, and it always makes sense to me. Um, I don't know if it applies to every single dream, but for most of mine, it sure does, that everything and every one of my dream is actually me. And like um, structures or homes or houses, um, that represents maybe like your whole life. I had a dream once where my house was burning down and I wanted to rush in and grab my fourth step. And um, I, I was panicked. You know, I was panicked. I'm like, I have to get those fears and resentments back. You know, I'm not done um, uh, with that. You know, that's important information, whatever. And, and if some fireman said, no, no, you don't need that anymore. It's fine. And I realized it was. And the whole house burned down. And, it, and I had that dream right after my I did my fourth or fifth step, I guess. And it was like, to me, like, oh, my past is burnt. You know, that I'm moving on. I don't need that. That kind of thing. But when there are other people in the dream, too, I was told that even they represent like a side of you. I don't know if it's true for every dream. But um, and then the emotions in the dream that you go through. Um, that's like the most telling part. So like if you're frustrated or you feel like you're running out of time then is there an area of your life where you're trying to move forward and you're not getting the attention or the um, whatever that you need? Mm. Not to like psychoanalyze you, but that's, <laughs> which I, you know, but that's, that, that's always what I learned. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Big recovery is like a, it's like, it never ends. I've, I've been clean and sober 22 years and um, it's like, it, it's like this endless onion. I'm always learning more about, um, why I do the things I do, well, you know, with it, uh, how I'm getting in my own way more than anything, you know. Right, right. Beautiful book, and there's so much, uh, there's so much agency in it. There's so much. It is your story. You, yeah. you totally own that story. Yes, yeah. yeah, so you. By the way, like I, I really felt like you towed that line so well. You know, we, you really shared a lot about um, what your son was going through as far as how it was affecting you and your reaction to it. But it never, it never went over the line. You were really respectful. I thought that's good to hear. The hardest thing for me was writing about the, the parents about writing about the two people I married. So the mother of my stepdaughter and the father of my son. And that was really hard. And I haven't just, in case you want to know, I haven't just, I mean, I'm sure my son's dad knows that I'm writing this book. He knows that I write. Yeah. But I haven't, I haven't had that conversation and I opted not to. And I tried so hard to uh, be as even handed and particularly with my son's dad to, be able to remember some of the some of the aspects of him and I mean because I often do spend time with my son and think how did this human being come to be about you know, who was involved and obviously his family was involved in the mix and I spend time with his family they're my son's family and so um but we haven't talked about the book and I don't and that is sort of a, a question mark for me uh, with either of the two of them, with, you know, what they will think if they'll read the book. Um, yeah. Well, I, I really, I, I mean, I, it definitely stuck out to me. I paid attention when you were talking about um, your ex-husband because um, I think that if anyone who's reading the book can kind of see what um, 
what it was like with you, you were very even handed. I mean, I, I, I didn't feel there wasn't an ounce of bitterness because sometimes you read it, you read it a lot of it. If you read a lot of addiction memoirs, you're going to come across the bitter ones, even sometimes a, just a line or two. It always comes across if you're writing it with a little bitterness or with a dig, like with the intention to dig or even just or even being a little reckless and telling more information than the, than the reader really needs. Like I tried very hard not to write things about Joe that didn't serve the story. And, um, you know. You did a great job of that. Yeah, you didn't. I thought I felt like you were very. I I felt like if I were your ex husband, um, I I wouldn't have anything to complain about. I, you, they may not like it. You know, I wouldn't like being in that position either. But I also would recognize, you know, if you wrote about me that way, I'd have nothing to complain about. But anyway, thank you for saying that. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh yeah, it's great talking to you. I um. Uh, good luck with everything. I know that, um, I don't know, when, when, when is the release date for the book? So the release date is July 18th, which apparently is also Nelson Mandela's birthday. And the birthday of Lillian Faderman, who is an author who I really respect and admire and who wrote me a blurb and said it's her 79th birthday. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel like those two things must be auspicious. Um, but it feels like it's never going to happen. It, in some ways, it does feel a lot like I know people that's such an old, kind of almost cliche, like birthing a book, you know, but it feels a bit like that. Oh, that's what it felt like to me, too, for sure. And in fact, I had that. It's something that you wrote about um, your last pregnancy. I think um, I remember sort of flashing on this sort of feeling of almost I was uncertain. I had reason to be uncertain that for some reason it wasn't going to come out. And it was like in the last six months, like there was no reason to really believe that, but I had this sort of, sometimes I have a weird sixth sense and, the, and this sort of uh, really unsettled, almost despairing period where I just, I couldn't, I couldn't conceive of it actually happening. And then it happened and it was like a, this supernatural kind of beautiful thing. I mean, I was nervous about the promotional stuff, but um, when the book came out, it just felt really natural and organic and, and like it was meant to be. Um, I don't know if other writers go through that. I'll have to start asking them, but it was my first book and I felt that's how I felt. Like, I don't know if this is going to happen. That's how I feel right now. <laughs> so. It's going to happen. It has to happen because it's stochastic out. It's beautiful. It's flawless. I thought, Oh boy, you just made my day. Thank yeah. you so much. It's been really wonderful talking with you and we have to continue this conversation. Definitely. I would love to talk to you some more anytime. And by the way, I must say, I'm going to call my mom soon and I'm actually going to buy her a copy of your book. So I'm going to make sure to get that when it comes out. 